Hi, I'm Paul Jay, and welcome to the Analysis.News podcast. Please don't forget uh, the donate button at the top of our webpage at the Analysis.News. And a very generous supporter has offered $10,000 as a matching grant. So if you donate or if you up your monthly donation, uh, he'll match that. And uh, that's how we survive. Uh, So thanks for listening and be right back. After Joe Biden won the Democratic Party primary in order to win over supporters of Bernie Sanders, Biden joined with Bernie to create working groups on various issues to develop a joint platform. Interestingly enough, foreign policy was not on the table. I don't know if that's because the two sides were too far apart on the issue, but Biden's appointments to his transition team now working on foreign policy and rumors of who he's considering for Secretary of State and other key posts is not suggesting any recognition of progressives' concerns about his policy direction. Domestic appointments so far are not all that much more encouraging for Sanders supporters. Now joining us to keep track of what we know so far about the direction of the incoming administration is Kevin Gostola. He's a managing editor of Shadowproof. He publishes the Dissenter newsletter at Substack and is co-host of the weekly Unauthorized Disclosure podcast. Thanks for joining us, Kevin. Yes, thank you. So start off with what do we know? Kind of go through the list of, let's start with foreign policy. Who are the key people on the transition team? Who does it sound like the direction that he might go in for uh, important appointments? So we've got a, a list of people who we know in the last week have been providing national security briefings. And then we also have Uh, these agency review teams. These are people who are going to plot the way forward for the first 100 days and after. So we have people who are on State Department teams, uh, a Defense Department team, and then there's an intelligence community team. And uh, these people are going to be most consequential for the way forward for foreign policy and, you know, how he interacts with his national security apparatus of um, the officials and the intelligence agencies. Uh, and you know, to me, uh, p- people that stand out are individuals like uh, General Stanley McChrystal, who we know as someone who commanded JSOC, the Joint Special Operations Command under President Barack Obama's administration, uh, but was also brought on board um, while Bush was president and was involved in running uh, these operations in Iraq, um, oversaw Camp Nama, which is uh, an acronym that spells out nasty ass military area, actually. And uh, there was just horrific torture going on there. It's heavily documented in Jeremy Scahill's book, The Dirty Wars or Dirty Wars. And you know he's someone who is a pioneer of this world as a battlefield paradigm that we live under in a post 9/11 era. He systematized mass killings and 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 the, the capturing of suspected insurgents in Iraq. Uh, and at, at this Camp Nava, we we know from Jeremy's book that a CIA general counsel visited and found that there were torture techniques being employed that were far worse than some of the techniques used by CIA interrogators. Uh, So it was just shocking, some of the gruesome details that are laid out there. 
Stanley McChrystal covered up the uh, tragic and horrific death of Pat Tillman, the former NFL player. He's implicated in that. Um, and so then, you know, you go down the list in the national security briefing. We also find William McCraven and William McCraven is another person who is emblematic of what uh, Obama pioneered and revolutionized when it came to drone warfare. McRaven was uh, would join John Brennan at the Terror Tuesday meetings where they pass around the baseball cards, picking who would be killed next on the kill lists. And uh, McRaven was, in fact, an individual who pushed for the strike that resulted in a massacre in Al-Majla in Yemen, um, something that Jeremy Scahill uh, reported on extensively and, and, and covered in detail and has gotten widespread attention by the Bureau of Investigative Journalism and other groups. The ACLU pushed, pushed for records on this massacre. There were 41 civilians who were killed, 22 children that were killed in this massacre. Um, and it turned out that there were no Al-Qaeda targets there. Uh, this was not an Al-Qaeda camp. This was where farmers and uh, women and children were living. Um, and uh, so that's another example. Samantha Power is in on these briefings, likely to be a, a top candidate for a position. She's uh, a, a regime change warrior, someone who pushed for war in Libya, someone who has pushed for greater action in Syria. And, uh, you know, the thing that I find in interesting that sticks out about her is this idea that her book, A Problem from Hell, was abused by neoconservatives to justify the war in Iraq. Uh, and yet when you look at her doctrine, which is known as responsibility to protect, a kind of a way, uh, what Max Blumenthal describes it as is uh, military humanism. Or, or, or taking um, what is really imperialism and, and cloaking it in this patina of genocide prevention um, and, and trying to make it more marketable to people who don't want additional entanglements throughout the world. So you look at her and there's no responsibility there. I mean, Libya has been utterly destroyed as a result of her advocacy and uh, yet uh, you know, she does not feel like that's something that could have been foreseen when she was working for Obama as his, uh, he, she had a special position. She was called the special assistant to Obama. Uh, seems like this, like almost created position just so she could advocate for greater military action in the Obama white house. Uh, so, so those are three individuals that stand out. Um, the, I'll, I'll close by just saying that there are stand-ins on the Biden-Harris transition team that look like uh, it suggests Susan Rice will be picked as the secretary of state that Biden wants to serve in his administration. And Susan Rice is, you know, another hawkish figure who pushed for war in Libya, who has this belief that, uh, Russian influence is behind uh, almost every single crisis that befalls the United States, it would seem. You know, she even suggested that the George Floyd protests might have been a result of Russian interference earlier in the summer this year. Uh, and Susan Rice is also notorious because when she was part of President Bill Clinton's administration, uh, there are documents that show that she advocated for removing 
UN peacekeepers from Rwanda. And we know now that that ended up fueling the genocide that took place in Rwanda. So she's had this on this con- on her conscience. And in a way, it's actually made her more hawkish and more irresponsible in her advocacy for greater interference or interventions in countries. So uh, I find myself in a weird position these days um, because there's been so much critique from many of our colleagues in independent journalism and so on about Biden and his history, um, which is mostly correct. Uh, I, I do think there's a few things that do need to be pointed out about Biden uh, where where it may suggest he's got a little bit less aggressive instinct. Uh, and maybe he did learn something from the Iraq war vote. But anyway, let me go through them. Because many of the people he's talking about and nominating are kind of not people that had this less aggressive instinct, which is kind of weird. So let's start with the most important one. Uh, Biden fought for the Iran nuclear deal and uh, apparently uh, against a lot of pressure from Chuck Schumer's and within the Democratic Party, uh, Biden fought for that deal. Uh, And I think when Obama got elected, you know, I had been very critical of Obama during the election campaign. I was never, uh, you know, I never drank the Obama Kool-Aid and I I actually read his speeches because if you read them, you saw he was a, a typical, normal, center-center-right Democratic Party figure. If you listened to him deliver the speeches and that wonderful smile, you would be charmed by him. So, uh, but I, I said there's one, only one thing I hope from Obama, that he'll be rational on Iran, and I think he was, given the alternatives. I mean, it's not like they didn't have sanctions and do some nasty things, but the deal was at least something you would never have gotten out of most other, certainly Republicans and maybe even Democrats. And Biden fought for that deal and has said he will return to it. We'll see if he does, but he says he. He says he'll uh, withdraw any support for the Saudis in Yemen. Uh, That's an important pledge, uh, and we'll see. It also tends to go along with the Iran deal because it's kind of a strategic positioning of not allowing the Saudis to simply run the Americans around the Middle East and uh, accept, and this is actually quoting Joe Biden from the uh, uh, first, uh, or I'm not sure, first or second campaign, but in one of the vice presidential debates, he said that you must now accept Iran as a regional power uh, because, you know, if you didn't want, this is him saying, if you didn't want Iran as a regional power, you shouldn't have invaded Iraq because that was the buffer. So that was a, rationale, a rational position about Iran, um, and hopefully he might pursue that. Um, on Libya, it's been reported that he was against the American intervention in Libya, and Obama went with Clinton and Samantha Powers instead. I, I don't know if it's true, but I think you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's been reported in more than one place that Biden argued against it. And then the other big one, uh, which I would say, and uh, which gives at least an, a, a glimmer of hope about uh, Biden on foreign policy, is in Kaplan's book on the uh, American nuclear war strategy. Uh, apparently, when uh, Obama wanted the New START treaty and uh, the Republicans were pushing back, they said, without a massive new investment in nuclear weapons, 
there would not they would not support any new treaty. And it's been reported by Kaplan that Biden argued against that, saying that one, they're never going to agree to the treaty anyway. And two, you shouldn't be making this massive new investment in nuclear weapons. So if all of that is true, and much of it has been reported and is fairly factual based, uh, it does suggest perhaps even a less aggressive policy than Obama. On the other hand, he's appointing all these old Obama people who are essentially, as you said, this humanitarian interventionism. I mean, we think he's appointing them. We'll see. I, these are people who are speaking to him and providing their most up-to-date knowledge that they have about the way the world is outlined. And I think on one hand, everything you say, it's okay to accept it's true. I mean, I, I, some of it I'm not sure that I know exactly. I'm not entirely sure what Biden's position is on Libya. It simply didn't come up a lot during the 2020 campaign. It, it wasn't an issue. Uh, but we do know, as you said, and I think it's an important thing, that he was willing to take a stand against the continued bombing of Yemen by Saudi Arabia. Uh, so we'll see how that works out. I'll say, though, that I don't see any individuals currently who are working on that as their focus of, 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 of ending that conflict. So uh, as I go down the list of people, I haven't come across anyone who has been specializing in what's happening in Yemen. And in fact, uh, you, you, you could make the case that you find individuals who have made it worse because they're linked to the drone warfare that has been intensifying um, divisions within the country. Um, so, so that's a problem. Well, for, for, what it's, for what it's worth, in Biden's article in Foreign Affairs early this year, uh, he talks about, one, ending the endless wars, whatever that really means. And two, he made this very specific pledge of uh, stopping support for the Saudis in Yemen. Now, whether he keeps that or not, who knows? Yeah, and I, I think uh, you, you mentioned that there was some uh, discussion between both camps, Bernie Sanders' supporters and Biden's supporters that came together to work out some agreements. And I, I do think that's uh, one area on foreign policy where there is a, an agreement um, on both sides. That this is something that needs to end. But we've also seen that in the Senate, that they have been working on uh, trying to and U.S. military support in the Senate. Of course, Donald Trump was able to veto uh, a resolution that was supported in both the House and the Senate. Um, Iran is very crucial. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, I became aware of an individual named Bob Work, who has uh, been involved in uh, defense work. And he recently, in the last two days on November 17th, participated in an event for the Center for New American Security, which is a think tank funded by weapons manufacturers. Um, and also they received some funds from for fossil fuel companies. And he spoke about how he thinks Iran is uh, marching toward a nuclear weapon. And that really was jarring to me because I don't see how uh, that's founded in any reality uh, on the ground in, in Iran. Um, I don't know what incentive they have to pursue a nuclear weapon unless it's your belief that the entire last four years under Donald Trump have backfired so miserably that we're back to where 
they believe they were at 10 or 15 years ago in, in considering having a nuclear weapon as a deterrent to protect them from U.S. imperialism, essentially. Let me just reinforce something you just said, because it doesn't get said enough. Even if they were moving towards a nuclear weapon, which there's no evidence that they are, none, yeah. but let's say it could only be for defensive purposes so you don't get invaded or bombed. Uh, there's no way it's, it's, it's for aggressive positioning. And that really needs to be said more often. Yeah, well, and I, I've always thought that, or at least I've come to understand that that's probably why North Korea has a nuclear weapon as well. I mean, the idea that you can assert as a deterrent that you're not going to be pushed around by the United States, that you have some leverage to work your way into uh, the world. And as Iran wants respect in the same way that North Korea wants to demand respect from the United States. And, and I, look at, I look at both of those countries, and I am concerned that when you see the roster of people being invited on board, they are, they are people who favor economic warfare. They call it economic statecraft, but they believe in sanctions, harsh sanctions to be meted out. And we really need to know and understand the impact of what the sanctions are right now on the people of Iran. Um, I'm not really sure what the, if, I, I think that Trump backed away from the sanctions regime because he's been pretty cozy with, uh, or he's he's been fond of Kim Jong Un to a to a degree, uh, and that's been the subject of a lot of liberal uh, jibes, so to speak. But uh, when you look at Venezuela, um, the sanctions that have been issued out to Venezuela have had a devastating impact. So Iran um, is right now currently in the worst COVID nineteen outbreak in the Middle East, and how are they going to deal with that? when they can't get supplies and medicine into the country? And how are they going to address that when unemployment has risen? Um, the currency has been so devalued and crushed by the United States. And uh, you see that costs of certain goods have skyrocketed because of the problems that they're, are, they're being created by these harsh sanctions. And you know, to be fair, this is mostly Trump's doing. This is mostly because of the unraveling of the nuclear deal, but it's also a policy of sanctions that is endorsed by people who worked for the Obama administration. My concern is that uh, how we get back to the nuclear deal is not going to be a smooth kind of a return. There's going to be a kind of coercive um, carrot and stick, so to speak, effort to both punish and force Iran to the table. These people believe that that's the right way of doing things. So there's going to be more harshness and harm to people in Iran before they finally get to have this agreement with the United States involved again, which is the way it should have been. You know, Trump shouldn't have ever left the nuclear deal and they did nothing wrong. And yet somehow they're going to be punished because this is how the Biden administration will politically get back to being part of the Iran nuclear deal. Okay, well, we'll, we'll see about that. Um, should we talk about some domestic uh, issues in terms of appointments and such? Uh, how's, how's it looking? Does it look any better on the domestic front? Because from what I've been seeing, in, in spite of all this uh, t uh, creating these teams or working groups with Sanders, 
uh, we're, we're not seeing very many appointments to these transition groups that seem to be coming from the progressive wing of the party. So what I want to say is there is actually an individual who uh, used to work for Harry Reid's office, who is in uh, one of the agency review teams. Um, his name's Josh Orton, and he worked with Bernie Sanders. Um, he's involved um, in one of the domestic policy uh, groups. And you know, you look up and down and you see some people who come from unions and also academia, and they aren't terribly abhorrent individuals. So I don't want you to think listening to this conversation that every single person that is talking to Joe Biden, uh, you know, sh should be marched to The Hague or should never be able to work again because they're aligned with some awful multinational corporation. But, you know, by and large, you look at the people who you think are going to have the greatest amount of influence and you have to be concerned. One of the individuals that I highlight domestically is his name is Seth Harris, and he's a front runner for the Labor Department secretary position. And he wrote a policy paper for the Hamilton Project, the neoliberal Hamilton Project, which is somewhat responsible for the rise of Barack Obama and ultimately grooming him for the uh, campaign that he run and ran and successfully, you know, he became president of the United States in 2008. Um, Seth Harris wrote this policy paper that was very useful to Uber and Lyft and DoorDash in developing this model for how they could avoid uh, a future where they would have to pay their gig workers or their contractors a minimum wage or where they would have to deal with the possibility that there would be unionizing. We saw in Proposition 22 out in California that there was a lot of uh, propaganda that have, uh, resulted and, and, and millions upon millions of dollars spent that resulted in this proposition passing that has now um, consigned this group of people in the workforce from being paid a minimum wage in California. It's a model that I think will be replicated nationally. And Seth Harris was involved in pushing this. And he's someone who is involved in these teams of people who are talking to Joe Biden about what to do uh, economically and, and domestically. One of the better appointments, I think, uh, Gary Gensler, who was the head of the Commodities Future Trading Commission in Chicago, where you are. Uh, and and he, uh, from what I understand, he did fight for some kind of reforms. He fought against uh, companies or individuals having too much ownership of a particular commodity. A lot of some of the regulations they passed after furious lobbying by finance against them were later struck down in federal court. But Gensler, I think, actually did fight for a certain amount of uh, regulation over commodity investors. So I uh, would put that in the in the positive column. Uh, I will add that something I, I haven't noted in any of the interviews I've done yet is that uh, someone named Urge Jadu, who is uh, involved with America's Voice, is actually the leader of the Homeland Security team. And, and this is a group that is a kind of... Um, I looked at it and it looks like a nonprofit operation that has done work around immigration rights or immigrant rights. And uh, the fact that someone like that is involved in coming up with the policy for Homeland Security. Uh, you also see someone from the American Civil Liberties Union who was asked to be part of this Homeland Security team. I do think that's a positive. 
and uh, it's it shows you just how uh, visceral the kind of uh, abusive policy of, of Trump it has been felt within the Democratic Party establishment, and how, how how convinced they are that you know you just can't go back to the way it was under Obama when we had the massive crisis of people fleeing Central America and there was child separation and people were ending up in cages and um, this was horrible. And eventually it just got even worse under Donald Trump. And I think they know that they can't go back to that status quo. So there's a lot that we can say about Biden's transition team and the status quo that they'd like to return us to. But I do think that there's a huge potential to move into a more positive direction when it comes to uh, how we treat immigrants. Uh, There's an interesting quote from Larry Fink, who's the head of BlackRock today, Uh, BlackRock being the largest asset management company, something like $7 trillion. And I keep saying this, but I will keep saying it. Uh, BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, uh, they have under their control about $14, $15 trillion, bigger than the GDP of China. They and other institutional financial sector investors uh, can vote shares that essentially control 90% of the S&P 500 and so on and so on. So he is a very powerful guy, said today he wants to see a reduction in geopolitical tension. Um, and I think maybe that's true. Finance, he said the finance sector, they're not looking for more war right now. Uh, they they want to get a little bit back more to an orderly uh, markets where capital gets the flow and exploit everyone. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, maybe that may speak towards a little bit less aggressive uh, aggressive rhetoric and policy towards China. I know BlackRock has invested in an index fund on the Chinese stock markets now, and, and American and Western uh, financial institutions really want into China. So maybe, maybe as, as, as much as Biden himself has tried to match Trump's very aggressive rhetoric on China, maybe, in fact, it will calm down a little bit here for a while. Yeah, I think, I think China is such an economic player. The kind of disruption that we saw from Trump's trade war and trying to impose tariffs was something I do think Wall Street was vehemently opposed to. And you can even see in the way that Goldman Sachs spoke about um, you know, what they saw coming forward in the future, that they were essentially uh, hoping and pining for a future in which they wouldn't have to worry with the kind of trade war rhetoric that they had seen in a, in, in a Trump administration. Uh, however, I will say that I'm concerned, and since we haven't gotten to it yet, I am concerned about the people who are in Biden, Harris's, the, the, the transition team. I'm concerned about how they view uh, the way that we have built up troops and forces in order to combat Russian influence in Europe and in uh, you know countries that used to be territories of Russia or the Soviet Union, because they believe that there actually aren't enough forces deployed. And I do think there's going to be a ramping up of tensions. And we need to be mindful of the fact that we are both nuclear powers, that the U.S. and Russia are both known for having nuclear weapons stockpiles. And, you know, uh, some of these people believe in arming Ukrainian groups and sending them weapons. And we've seen 
uh, what has happened with those groups. Um, even weapons that have been sent to Ukraine have ended up in the hands of uh, neo-Nazi groups that are fighting Russia. And so uh, I, I am concerned about where that might be heading. In some ways, I'm more alarmed by what might lie in the future when it comes to Russia than I am with China, because it has so defined the Democratic Party's identity for the last four years to promote this conspiracy theory that we owe that, 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 that Vladimir Putin is the responsible party for why our country elected Donald Trump. And when you have a party that has made this a part of their identity, then I think it naturally follows that the foreign policy is going to start to look like what the response should be to believing that you are constantly under some malign influence from Russia. So naturally, in order to appease their supporters in the same way that the Republicans have to appease people because they're so anti-immigrant and they have to keep them out of the country. And you saw the uh, you know the absurd lengths that Donald Trump would go, even talking about building a wall. I think we might see some very uh, aggressive absurdities on the part of the Democratic Party and Biden administration in challenging Russia. I mean, they simply believe that almost every crisis must have some kind of Russian involvement behind it. Yeah, I think that's a very important point. When uh, Esper, Secretary of Defense, before he got fired, uh, went on the Hill to justify the military budget, you know, up around what is a seven, eight hundred billion, really over a trillion, uh, he said, uh, we he's asked, why, do, why does the Pentagon need so much money? And he said, for three reasons, China, China, China. Now the Democrats are going to have their own three reasons because they, they represent tech and other sectors that don't want to have such an inflammatory situation with China. So their answer will be Russia, Russia, Russia. I agree with you. It's, it's, it, it's, it's the way the Democrats get to invoke the ghosts and demons of the Cold War on their side. And they think somehow that plays well with the American people, which is nuts because Trump just got 72 million votes after the Democrats continue to play that card over and over again. Um, and I'll just say again what I've said several times. The whole Russia interference in the election uh, is such baloney. Me, from my point of view, I have no idea how much they did or didn't interfere in the election. It's just bloody irrelevant because if you want to talk about the undermining of American democracy, nobody undermines American democracy more than the American oligarchy. And anyone that actually cares about democratic processes would, would start there, not some minor social media crap that went on and what did or didn't go on. But at any rate, yeah, th there needs to be a narrative to justify this massive military budget. And for Trump, it's China. And for the Democrats, it's going to be Russia. Yeah. And to me, the disinformation machine is and has been, at least in my lifetime, and you know, I've not lived as long as you have, but in my lifetime, I understand it as coming from the right wing, right wing conservative echo chamber, the, the media echo chamber that they have so perfected going back to you know the 1990s and before that in the 1980s, you know, being able to push their message in such a way that everyone fervently believes it. I mean, I think we're seeing it as numerous people believe that somehow Biden may have stolen votes and isn't the actual president elect. That's disinformation. That's far worse than the impact that we've seen any 
small number of uh, alleged Russian intelligence officials have on our social media ecosystem and our conversations. The stuff that they identified in their reports was laughable. Um, you know, things like Buff Bernie and uh, stuff like that that they said people saw, these Facebook groups that were suggesting that people go out and protest and they were trying to create conflict in cities in Florida between people who were anti-Muslim and the people who were pro-Muslim, things of that nature, but just didn't bring anything that much into fruition. At the same time, there are a couple of individuals who are on the Biden agency review teams who are affiliated with something called the German Marshall Fund, which had as a project during Donald Trump's administration, the Alliance for Securing Democracy. And people who are on the board of directors for the Alliance for Securing Democracy are neoconservatives like Bill Kristol and Michael Chertoff. Um, But also you find Jake Sullivan, who is someone who is close to Joe Biden, who was a foreign policy advisor for Hillary Clinton. And these people put together something called Hamilton 68 that they claimed was capable of tracking and finding Russian influence in operations on Twitter or Facebook or you know, other pockets on the social media. And they uh, you know, got themselves into trouble because they were constantly misidentifying. Uh, they, they would claim that Black Lives Matter hashtags were being pushed by Russians and things of that nature. It was wholly discrediting to their operations. There were sites that they'd rope in that you'd look at their URLs and you'd say, clearly, this isn't originating from Russia. Antiwar.com is not Russia um, and places like that. And it became a very convenient way for them to marginalize and go after uh, left-wing anti-war voices and people who are anti-imperialists. And, you know, I think during Biden's administration, we're going to see more of that because it's very convenient. They know that there are people who are opposed to their worldview when it comes to foreign policy. And the only answer that they have is not to debate us, but to suppress the way we view. And, and, and instead of engaging us constructively they would rather erase us from social media. And unfortunately, they've convinced Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook and Jack Dorsey that they should get involved. And the, the result of all of the uproar around white supremacists and right-wing conservatives being hateful and spreading misogyny or racism on these platforms is not just to censor them and then let us be, but it's to kind of create a false equivalency and say that, well, then we need to turn around and we need to get rid of people who support boycott, divestment, and sanctions against Israel. And we need to see them as anti-Semites, and so we'll remove them. Um, and it's to go even a step further and to erase voices who are in adversarial governments like Iran, China, Russia, Venezuela, Nicaragua, to remove those voices and say that people here in the United States and around the world shouldn't be exposed to them as they oppose the United States. And so they get their accounts taken down by these platforms. And so I'm concerned because Biden, um, the people around him in his circle, really do believe in this kind of suppression of uh, discourse. I think it's an important point that needs to be made more often as well, is that the Democratic Party primary corporate leadership, their foreign policy thinking, and Obama said this when he was asked, where does your foreign policy thinking come from? Uh, is Truman. And it's not that Truman was some brilliant 
foreign policy thinker, is that Truman, a Democrat, realized after World War II that the way to grow the American economy and, and out of this post-war period was military, increased militarization. Even though they cut back a little bit for a while, it started to grow again. And this is why you get this uh, quote from Eisenhower, beware of the military-industrial complex. He doesn't say get rid of the military-industrial complex, Eisenhower. He said beware of the consequences. But he takes it as a given and it's not because they really thought the Soviet Union was ever going to uh, attack the United States. There's lots of internal documentation. They never believed that was true. They never believed that the Soviet Union would invade Western Europe. It was all a framing for a, a justifying this militarization of the economy. And everybody knows when they build an aircraft carrier or jets, they, every state gets a little piece of it. It's an important part of the economy. It's a way there's actual, you know, government, it's Keynesianism with arms. And it's, uh, it's something that Republicans always push without admitting that this is government stimulus to a large extent. But in the Democratic Party, uh, this is the, the core around which their thinking is that if you were ever to give up on this militarism, uh, you're, 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 what do you do with the economy? Now, the fact is they could take that same money and just directly stimulate and create infrastructure. It doesn't have to be spent on military. And in fact, military stimulus, production of military, is a lousy way to stimulate the economy. If you look at the jobs, the bang per buck in terms of jobs and such and things like that. But they're, they're so rooted. And then the second thing is, and this is part of Eisenhower's beware, is that not only is the military industrial complex so powerful politically. But who owns the military industrial complex now? It's all the big banks. Like you go and you look at who owns the majority of shares of Raytheon and Lockheed Martin and Boeing and all these big ones. It's all financial institutions going, starting with BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, who each of them have, you know, at least five, six, seven percent of the shares. And then other financial institutional investors. So, it, it, you know, you start talking about changing foreign policy with serious cuts on military spending. You're not just taking on those military manufacturers. You're taking on the financial sector. So you got to be able to justify all this. And it's, if it's not China, it's got to be Russia because you don't need aircraft carriers to fight terrorism. What is it? They're building, I think it is a dozen, 12 or 13 Ford-class aircraft carriers, nuclear aircraft carriers, and they're going to cost something in the range of 13 or $14 billion each. How do you justify that unless there's some power out there with, as an existential threat? Uh, the other, ICBMs cost billions of dollars, a trillion dollars in new upgrading of America's nuclear arsenal. Daniel Ellsberg and others who are experts in these issues so the ICBMs are totally useless because everybody knows, each country knows where each other's ICBMs are and knows how to target them. The only real effective deterrent is on submarines. But they're going to spend billions more on, on upgraded ICBMs. Why? Because it makes money. This, uh, you know, this quote from Ellsberg, I think, is really important. He, he says, Ellsberg says, says he came to realize that the Cold War 
was essentially a subsidy for the aerospace industry after World War II. And that's the, that is, the, I think, the essence of Democratic Party corporate Democrats foreign policy. Yeah. And, and the one thing I'll point out to you along the lines of what you just said is that we see people who get linked back, uh, who you can link back to. They, actually ha- they have positions at these think tanks. These are places like the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, they boast that they're the number one think tank in the U.S. That's how they, they feel about themselves. Um, there's the Center for New American Security or a new, a new American security. There's the New America Foundation. And uh, I'm, I'm struck by what you just outlined because you mentioned the big banks. You mentioned the, the, the defense contractors, uh, the weapons manufacturers. And then you know there's oil companies as well that are part of this. And altogether, they basically entrench this kind of war economy and CSIS, the Center for Strategic International and International Studies, is some place, it, it is a, a influential place, a hub of, of, of pushing out thinking about U.S. foreign policy that receives funding by the Bank of America, Chevron, Northrop Grumman, Boeing, ExxonMobil, Lockheed Martin, Saudi Aramco, Bechtel, Citigroup, General Dynamics, Raytheon, BAE Systems, Royal Dutch Shell, ConocoPhillips, and J.P. Morgan Chase. So, I mean, you see right there why it's going to be so difficult to reform and move the Biden administration. And I think we should say right here that when it comes to the threat of climate disruption, that the U.S. military is like the biggest polluter in the world when it comes to emissions. And yet you go down the list of threats and at no point do you see these people who are being brought on as voices that they are specializing in challenging uh, the the way in which the U.S. is contributing to climate change and also uh, leading that, working on that as the number one threat to not just the U.S., but the world, making that their focus. And why does it have to be great power competition? Well, that's because that's how the economy is organized, as you say. I mean, we can't it takes more work to reorganize it in a way to save the planet. And so we're stuck in a, a status quo that benefits those who make the most money and the elites aren't going to shift. Um, and that's why you find it so difficult to move the Democrats in a direction to support the Green New Deal or anything similar in a way that could stimulate the economy and provide jobs to people when they need it most at a time when the COVID-19 pandemic has put incredible stress on small businesses and uh, people at uh, stores and shops and all kinds of places across America are finding it harder to keep people on the payrolls. So I don't know, we're going to need something FDR-like from Biden, but his administration is built with people who are as far from the FDR sensibility as you could possibly be. Yeah, it certainly started, looks like it's starting out that way. And the only hope here is, and it's, a, it's not a good hope in a sense that as this pandemic continues to get worse and the economic consequences get worse, does it get so dire that there just has to be FDR-ish kind of moment, uh, whether these are the right people for it or not? Uh, nothing will happen without ordinary people getting organized in some kind of mass movement. Uh, okay, well, thanks very much for joining us, Kevin. Thank you. 
And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news uh, podcast. We're going to do another segment uh, with Kevin or another reporter and, and deal specifically with what Biden's going to do on climate because some of the appointments so far are, are it's kind of a mixed bag, but one of the key ones is not so encouraging, this guy Richmond. Uh, but we'll, we'll talk about it more later. So don't forget, we're having this uh, fundraising campaign right now. One of our donors put up 10000 bucks as a matching grant. If you donate, he'll match buck for buck. If you do a monthly, uh, well, times 12 match it. Yeah, if you increase your monthly, uh, they'll help match that for over 12 months. Uh, so thanks for joining us. Mm -hmm.